At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Guizueta Business School, and your host. Today, I'll be joined by Giacomo Negro. We'll take a deep look into the wine industry. According to Fortune, in 2020, the global wine market was valued at nearly $349 billion. By 2028, it's expected to grow exponentially topping $450 billion. Wine market identities and genres play a key role in shaping the industry. We'll discuss the audiences that impact how producers make and sell wine, and how wine communities react to evolving trends like mixing genres. We'll also delve into how organic and biodynamic farming are changing the way wine is produced and evaluated. Giacomo is a professor of organization and management at Emory University's Guizueta Business School. He holds a PhD in management from Bocconi University, where he also received a Loria degree in economics and business. He recently published the book, Wine Markets, Genres and Identities. Welcome, Giacomo. Thank you, Melanie. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Great. Well, for this book, you talked with and studied winemakers, writers, restaurant owners, and retailers across Italy, France, and California. Before we delve into your findings, let's ground ourselves with some basics. What is a wine genre, and what features are considered when evaluating which genre a wine falls into? Thank you for the question. Uh, By genre, we mean a real-world concept, something that's used in real life and whose interpretation is widely shared in an audience. Uh, Genres in wine are not very different from genres in other cultural fields, such as film or music. Uh, For example, the genre labeled folk music describes a set of choices on lyrical, sonic, and artistic performance. For instance, using acoustic instruments, singing in a confessional tone, etc. Uh, Wine has incredible diversity. Think of hundreds of thousands of labels in the market introduced every year based on region, grape, vintage, producer, and combinations of uh, each of these dimensions. Uh, Features of wine include, for example, effervescence. Uh, And there are two possible, or there are maybe more, but we identified two possible feature values, uh, still and sparkling. Another one is source material. Uh, In in the case of wine, it's vinifera grapes, uh, but wine can also be called wine if it's made with rice, apples, and so on and forth. So essentially, going back to the example of folk music, uh, in the case of folk music, the concept uh, or the genre tells what should be expected of a performance of folk music and what should not. Uh, Genres are very useful in in understanding and communicating Mm -hmm. uh, about wine and wine uh, producers. Uh, In particular, genres affect how wines get interpreted and evaluated and valued in the market. They also serve as the building blocks of uh, uh, what we uh, term collective market identities of producers. 
What about the notion of terroir? What role does this play in genre? Uh, it does play an important role. Uh, terroir identifies territory. That's the literal translation. And maybe in some interpretations, terroir only identifies territory. But culturally, it's not only about location. It's location plus the people who inhabit uh, the location and work in a particular location and the history of these people. Uh, so terroir is a cultural concept and you know it is complex to articulate. Um, the elements that characterize terroir can be features of a wine genre, going back to what we just discussed. Later, we may expand in the discussion how also terroir relates to competition and strategies of, of wineries. Uh, for example, terroir can be a source of advantage, competitive advantage in the market, to the extent that it identifies a unique place, uh, both geographical and cultural, that is not possible to replicate or imitate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I assume that Champagne is an example of that, yes? Yes, yes. Okay. And, okay. And, and in fact, uh, governments uh, often intervene in this industry to regulate what is allowed and not allowed in the production of certain wines and also how certain wines can be labeled. Uh, champagne being an example, but also the wines that we discuss uh, in the book, Barbaresco, Barolo, um, Brunello di Montalcino, and the Alsatian wines. Great, wonderful. In your book, you talk a lot about the market identities of wine. Can you explain what market identities are and why they matter? Uh, identities, the way we interpret them, are different from brands. They are related but different. First, the brand or a brand is created by a producer or on behalf of the producer by an agency. Uh, second, uh, brands are fungible. They can be purchased and sold. Identities instead are attributed to a producer by an audience. They are, in this sense, more a more sociological uh, concept. The audience, in, 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 in this sense, controls the identity of the producer or the wine. It is not the producer or the wine, mm -hmm. if you wish, that controls their own identity. It is what is projected to the outside. Well, you talked a lot about audiences being the ones who determine market identity. When we think about wine markets, what audiences are involved and what stakeholders influence producers, including their decisions and their success? Uh, several audiences for wine have a decisive influence. Consumers, producers, and market intermediaries such as critics and retailers. Uh, the significance of the consumer audience is obvious. Uh, it is the group of people who in the end decides whether to purchase a wine and reward its uh, maker. Uh, state authorities also influence the market. In France and Italy, the two countries that we studied in the book, the state enforces rules of production that come largely from collectives of winemakers. In judging whether particular wineries uh, or wines adhere to these rules, state agencies play an audience role, mm -hmm. one that can decisively affect the flows of resources to the producers. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, producers 
routinely also evaluate each other's work. They participate in collective efforts, um, in collective experimentation, for example. And uh, and so they shape collectively the meanings of their wines and and their and and, and of what they do, mm-hmm. uh, similar to art, to the art world, for example. And so they play the audience role to uh, one another as well. And if I have time, I, I would like to elaborate on the interesting role played by intermediaries, uh, such as critics. Absolutely. Uh, how a wine from a past vintage tastes can prove a useful guide for the audience to assess the quality of a current uh, wine. Uh, but some producers change practices all the time in response to changes in climatic conditions or technical developments. Uh, so wine quality can only be assessed accurately in the act of consumption and perhaps not completely even then. Uh, this explains in part, why critics have such importance uh, as well as why information communicated through market signals uh, by the intermediaries has value for uh, telling the quality of wines from new vintages. Intermediaries have a significant influence on these matters, especially for fine wine. That requires more interpretation and more knowledge to be understood. One role that critics play is gatekeeping. Uh, with a large number of products, I mentioned hundreds of thousands of different labels on the market available at any point in time, and also with change from season to season, uh, it would be impossible for consumers to gather information about each label or sample every wine. Uh, I wish they could. Uh, <laughs> critics select only a few out of the many options available to consumers. So this is the gatekeeping function. Second, experienced goods also include symbolic features, um, cultural features, as we um, mentioned terroir, understanding what terroir means, the origin, the uh, history of of terroir. Uh, And so uh, cultural products involve a complex social context that require expert knowledge to decode. Uh, in the cultural domain, think about the revolutionary approach uh, of cubism in visual arts. Uh, Artists like Pablo Picasso or Georges Braque pioneered the visual style in which they represented multiple views of objects or figures uh, in the same picture, resulting in paintings that appear fragmented or abstracted. We needed theorists uh, at the time uh, to understand and help the audience of consumers or collectors, museum goers, Uh, to comprehend what this new style was about. Critics act in the wine industry, act in a similar uh, fashion to uh, help the final consumer audience uh, understand uh, the the characteristics of a new genre, for example. Mm -hmm. Finally, critics provide quality judgments um, because they certify the value of the goods that they select and interpret for the consumers. The the ability to distinguish quality and provide rankings uh, of goods, of what is best uh, or worst, or what is better and what is worse. Uh, Things like the the list of the top 10 movie directors in a year, or the best books of all time, is especially important in markets that contain many kinds of products and many items in each type of product. Um, in, In these markets, consumers face complex goods with uncertain value. These critics, 
have influence. There, there was this famous review of one of the traditionalist uh, winemakers, Barolos, uh, of Bartolo Mascarello's uh, Barolo, uh, that James Sucklin, that I think at the time was maybe writing for the Wine Spectator, that gave the wine a very low score. And so I think that James Sucklin gave the wine maybe a 70 or 71 and described it as the smell of two wet dogs in a room after you know a rainfall which was the the producer and at the time it was uh, uh, Maria Teresa Mascarello the daughter of Bartolo Mascarello she's a very we, we met her several times she's a very um quiet thoughtful um modest person and she didn't necessarily um get angry but she was somewhat offended by, I think by the lack of respect uh, in the in the review so i think what's maybe interesting in this anecdote is the fact that critics also need to attract attention to their work um, and so one way to do that is by expressing unique uh, maybe extreme views uh, on on products and producers um, but that clearly is a review that everyone remembers years later in the industry and it was influential the wine itself did not I don't think it it um, determined the economic fate uh, of the wine, given the reputation of the winemaker, but was clearly um, at resonance across the entire industry, which mm -hmm. is interesting if you yeah. think about how many reviews get published uh, every year. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book and some of the, the areas you go deeper on. So in the book, you focus on the reaction of various wine communities as genres change and shift. And you liken the outrage of certain groups to the reaction of fans when Bob Dylan began using an electric guitar. Can you talk about the emotional reaction people may have when they feel their expectations have been violated? I think we start the introduction of, of the book with the example of Bob Dylan and his concert uh, in uh, the 1966 or 1967 in Manchester, where he one of the first concerts in which he unveiled his electric guitar to play his old folks, folk songs. And the audience jeered. The audience reacted very negatively and booed him. Uh, and it took time for uh, the the world to accept his new uh, musical effort. So, and, and I think this is main, largely related uh, to the role that uncertainty plays in, in cultural fields like music or in industries like uh, uh, wine. So, and, and this is a major theme of, of our analysis, uncertainty. Uncertainty arises when wineries and their wines are associated or not uh, with genres. And this is an instance of a general process of categorization. So the uncertainty we're talking about is uncertainty about categorization of wines or, or wineries, the same way that the audience at the Manchester concert uh, found it difficult to categorize Bob Dylan and his music uh, when he was using atypical instruments to play his more typical folk uh, songs. So some wineries and wines are easy for the audience to categorize and others are more difficult. 
Uh, and some of this variation is associated with choices uh, made by the winemaker, for example, producing wines in different genres. Uh, these variations in uncertainty uh, shape the reactions and evaluations, both aesthetic and emotional, as you said. Um, we build on research in cognitive psychology that has demonstrated that people like and value objects that fit with their conceptual distinctions uh, better. More typical objects are valued more positively than atypical ones. Uh, this pattern has been uh, argued to depend on an effect of uh, what researchers call cognitive fluency. An experience with an object or situation is fluent for someone if they have to exert um, little cognitive effort in understanding and interpreting that object or situation. A high demand for cognitive effort instead, or disfluency, uh, generates a negative effect. Uh, which can take then the form of a low or lower evaluation. In one of the regions that we studied, uh, Piedmont, the main genres were traditional and modern Barolo, uh, distinguished by many features, but especially the use of the container in which to age the wine. Uh, traditionalists used large casks called botti, and the modernists started to use French barriques, the smaller uh, oak barrels. The former, the traditionalists, preserve the, uh, what, what the large casks do is that they preserve the tannins of the wine for a longer time. Uh, the French barriques instead release more oak flavors to the wine sooner, so they're more palatable, more appealing, fresher to drink uh, sooner. The critics responded negatively to producers who spend the style. Uh, in, in, in the same wine or in multiple wines within a portfolio of wines. Um, and particularly, critics re responded negatively to wines that use these two different aging containers mm -hmm. in making the same wine. Well, you studied, a, you studied several regions in the book, um, and you really focused on social structures of the communities and how they influence the emergence and acceptance of genres. Can you speak to key findings, including differences and commonalities that you saw? The, in the book, we explore three successful cases of uh, um, the emergence of uh, wine genres and collective market identities and one failure, so to speak. A key difference between success and failure of wine genres lies in the social structure of production and the resulting community solidarity among producers. Uh, we argue that more homogeneous communities of producers develop greater social cohesion within them that helps establish a genre, which in turn organizes and galvanizes a producer's identity. Uh, for example, we collected data uh, about the associations of producers that were founded in the 1960s in Piedmont and Tuscany. We then researched the geographical origins, the socio-economic background of these producers. We found that in Piedmont, the vast majority of these producers worked and lived in the same small town in which they were born and in which their parents and grandparents were born. They were each other's neighbors, friends, and relatives. In Tuscany, instead, many producers in the early archives came from other regions in Italy, both north and south, and some from abroad. 
these differences, just you know, descriptively, suggest a more homogeneous uh, community in the first case and a less homogeneous community of producers in the, in the latter case. In Piedmont, the cultural tension around wine genres was strong and long-lasting. For example, the dispute about the use of the aging containers, the barriques versus botti distinction that I referred to earlier. Um, one example, Elio Altare, pioneer of modernist winemaking, undertook a notorious radical act that in many ways symbolizes the cultural break, the tension in the region that put the focus on the choice of the barrel for wine aging. In 1982, his frustration with his father's refusal to allow him to purchase barriques um, to make the wines led him to destroy the family's large casks with a chainsaw. This episode is often referred to the chainsaw massacre in Barolo. Uh, he, Altare told us that he began using the chainsaw to cut down the family's fruit trees. Then he spontaneously carried on with the boat in the cellar. This act led his father to disinherit him uh, entirely. The father stopped talking to Elio. Elio's daughter told us that Elio's father was so disappointed, he even stopped going to church because the people in, the, in their town thought that um, his son was crazy. So there's um, this anecdote, I think, illustrates how in this community, even kinship, even kin relationships that should, uh, I think, typically indicate uh, agreement, consensus, uh, and instead led to this deep uh, division mm -hmm. in, in interpretation of winemaking. Mm -hmm. um, and we think that this was partly due to the social structure behind the, uh, the, the production of, uh, of the wines. And so more, more homogeneous communities of, of producers are better positioned to create shared meanings mm -hmm. around the uh, activities of winemaking, uh, uh, around the products of winemaking, but can also create deep tensions. Mm -hmm. In Tuscany, this was instead hardly an issue. Uh, the choice of barrels is was not seen as a dividing line uh, between uh, between the genres. Um, overall, wine genres and their identity then can I think I hope that the the, the example illustrates how they they can be useful tools mm -hmm. in um, for critics, consumers, and scholars uh, to make sense of the wine world and evaluate this ama amazing variety that we observe. So one reviewer called your book a study in economic sociology. Can you explain how your findings in the wine industry may apply to other industries as well? In, in the book, we, we show three examples of successful mobilization by winemakers around wine genres and one failure to create a, a powerful market identity. This is similar to the way in which social movements can mobilize around certain concepts or issues and pursue social change in many different uh, settings or defend the status quo as well. Um, so in a way, the book can speak to other contexts in which producers organize to change the interpretation of a tradition or a way of doing things that is established and accepted, or producers 
organize and mobilize to defend it or fail to do so. Examples include um, other products in the food sector, uh, the interplay between categories of chefs and cuisines in the food world, um, examples like molecular versus traditional gastronomy, uh, and outside of food, also fashion, the interplay, the tension between ethical fashion and traditional fashion, uh, or also the divisions, or the tensions, differences that can arise between uh, crafts workers uh, or professions, artisan workers that face uh, different options for organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and a final example, artistic styles, the way that they interact and uh, uh, differentiate. Mm -hmm. So earlier you were talking about the region of Alsace, and you, you talk about conventional farming and alternative agriculture, including practices like organic farming and biodynamic farming. These have had a big impact on the wine industry. In the regions you studied, in 1980, only one winery was biodynamic and one organic. By 2010, roughly half of the wineries in your study had joined one of these categories. Let's start with organic farming first. What defines organic farming, and why have some wine producers made this shift? Um, organic farming is defined by the use of fertilizers solely of organic origin, such as compost manure and green manure, uh, to improve the humus content of soils. Uh, organic farming also emphasizes techniques such as crop rotation and companion planting, uh, biological pest control, mixed cropping, and the fostering of insect predators are encouraged. Uh, legal standards regulate production methods for organic agriculture, um, the production and labeling of organic products within the European Union or the United States follows a strict certification process, for example. We conducted our study in Alsace, a northeastern French region, where in recent years non-conventional farming methods have diffused significantly. A, a distinctive feature of this wine region was at the beginning a confused identity of its wines among critics and consumers. Confusion that seemed to be associated with multiple factors, a complex cultural history of the region that was handed over between countries multiple times, sweetness of the wine that was difficult to determine, and also proliferation of low-price wines coming from production areas designated typically for high-quality wines. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the so-called Grand Cru wines. We should have high prices as well, but often do not. So similar to organic farming, some producers have taken it a step further. They practice biodynamic farming. What is this and what impact does it have on the wine produced? Yeah, biodynamics shares many features with uh, organic farming, uh, particularly the prohibition uh, of use of uh, uh, chemicals uh, for fertilization, uh, use of growth regulators uh, for the plants and, uh, and, other, uh, and other rules. Uh, where biodynamics is different is that it proposes a unified approach to agriculture that relates to the ecology of the farm uh, and its association with planetary and cosmic rhythms. 
it sets itself apart from other agricultural systems, including organic farming, by its association with the precepts of anthroposophy proposed by Rudolf Steiner in the 1920s. Uh, Steiner was considered, uh, is considered the father of anthroposophy, a philosophy that aims to apply rational thought to phenomena of spiritual experience. Biodynamic farming prescribes the use of certain practices. So it not only prohibits the use of certain practices, but also mandates the use of certain practices, including a set of preparations to promote healthy soil and plant growth. These practices are colorful, colorful and mystical. For some, they are esoteric. They mark a very strong turn from the scientific winemaking of uh, some regions, including Bordeaux or the New World uh, countries. Especially visible is the use of several fermented preparations. They are field sprays and compost inoculants. These preparations consist of plant parts and extracts stored in animal tissues that have been bur buried in the soil. One uh, famous, iconic, notorious practice is the so-called Preparation 500. This is made by filling cow horns with manure from lactating cows fed with biodynamic grains, burying them in the vineyard on the autumn equinox and digging them up on the spring equinox. Some of the processes that you talked about are incredibly elaborate um, and must and increase production costs considerably. Does and should the market pay a premium for these products? Biodynamic wines receive better ratings than organic wines when the critic knows the producer's identity and therefore the farming method used to make the wine, but not necessarily in blind tastings when the evaluator does not know the producer's identity. Um, in some blind tastings, some analysis using blind tastings they do, but in others they do not. So it's not a consistent finding. Um, so it makes sense uh, to pay a premium relative to conventional wines uh, because th the quality in blind tasting, blind tastings for organic and, and biodynamic wines shows to be higher. However, it's not necessarily because these are better wines. It's more likely because these are better wineries to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so biodynamics makes not necessarily their wines better, but makes gives the producers an opportunity to signal their higher quality. Mm -hmm. So these wineries signal that they are better by taking costly actions. Mm -hmm. One interesting finding um, consistent with this idea is that the prices for wines made with non-conventional farming methods are sold at higher prices on average, but the price increase is not necessarily as high as the cost increase. So non-conventional wineries can make less profits. And the fact that they continue to work using these practices can indicate their commitment to quality, that they are willing to sacrifice some of the profits in exchange for using these practices that are visible as signals in the market. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's also possible that they expect more repeat purchases or so longer term relationships if they make these costly investments or that uh, they expect greater profitability, but in the very long run. 
In researching this book, you spent more than 10 years traveling around France and Italy. You visited the homes, vineyards, and cellars of key players in the wine industry. What are some of your favorite memories and favorite wines you experienced along the way? This is a fantastic research project uh, for me. Uh, it lasted a long time. It allowed me to work closely with a longtime collaborator and friend, uh, Mike Cannon and, and Susan Olzak. Um, so it, it's very, it's been a very important project for my professional development. Uh, but and, and I have many memories of uh, visits uh, to wineries, to interviews with critics. Uh, visits to archives uh, during the winter, summer, uh, so many, yeah, many personal memories. I think when when people open their cellars, people also open their homes to us, mm -hmm. and so some of the winemakers or critics became friends. Some passed away, and we were uh, able to develop some real connections with uh, with some of them, and also with the next generation of uh, relatives or siblings that uh, took over the the winery later on. I think what struck many things uh, stayed with me from this project, certainly observing the dedication of the winemakers, uh, the simplicity and humbleness with which they approach their work, which is in many ways, I think, similar to how artists uh, hone their crafts. And uh, farming or winemaking are often represented as these idyllic uh, situations, but they require very, very hard uh, discipline and constant work. At the same time, I think this type uh, of, of project uh, uh, that often was took place in isolated regions from, you know, isolated and distant from large cities and busy uh, centers, um, I think allowed for me a, a maybe a, a way to um, observe life away from certain trappings, uh, but also appreciate, you know, strong family bonds in winemakers' uh, families. The idea of competing in the market, but also th that is, I think, driven by material incentives, need for recognition and all of that, but also the importance in these competitive processes of identification and with a collective, and also the dedication, example setting of, uh, of many of these winemakers. And another fascinating aspect of this project was that we were able to see some of the personality traits that these winemakers project onto you when you meet with them, uh, onto the, almost the, the flavors and the taste of the wines that they make. So some people that appear to be quite stern and reserved could make wines that tasted more tannic, more astringent, more um, almost impenetrable than others that instead appear to be more extroverted and outgoing. And that's fascinating. And that to me is why in part I compare this context to say art, the arts, where the artist develops a vision, but also often brings in, you know, part of their biography in, in what they do. There's something about their, their own individual style that gets reflected mm -hmm. in the final product. 
Giacomo Negro is a professor of organization and management at Guisueta Business School. He joined today to talk about the world of wine and how social structures influence the adoptions of new trends in the industry. Thank you, Giacomo. For more information about the Guisueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast. Thank you.